Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll explore how to tell when you need a mental health break with a family physician who focuses on wellness. If you're constantly draining the tank and not filling it back up, at some point, you're going to be empty. An emergency physician explains how pre-hospital blood transfusions can be life-saving. I would say that the severity of the patient's injury, their clinical condition, and anticipated transport time are definitely factors that would play into the decision whether or not to initiate a transfusion of blood product in the pre-hospital setting. And a pair of pharmacists discuss compounding and other specialized services. We're trying to fill that gap because we know that there's a significant need in the community to fill it. And that's kind of what we're all about, is trying to fill that community need. All that, plus who qualifies for lung cancer screening and a visit from the Healing Muse. But first, the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn how lives can be saved through pre-hospital blood transfusions. Then a pair of pharmacists explain compounding and other specialized services. But first, are you burning out? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. How do you know when you need a mental health break? I'm putting that question to Dr. Koshal Nanavati, the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. He's also a frequent guest on HealthLink on Air. Thank you for being here, Dr. Nanavati. Thank you for having me again, Amber. Now, the world saw tennis star Naomi Osaka pull out of the French Open earlier this year. She cited mental health concerns. So I wonder, is that going to inspire people to put their mental health first, do you think? I think whenever people who are in the public eye take steps to, uh, in whatever direction, whether they take care of their health uh, or whatever else they're going to make as a decision, there's always a you know magnifying uh, lens on them. I think Naomi Osaka uh, took a bold and brave and uh, self-affirming step uh, to recognize that she needed to work on some components beyond her tennis game to optimize her living experience. And I think that's something to be commended. Uh, and at her level, she understood the consequence, uh, the potential risk of you know pushback and feedback from those within not only her tennis community, but the world at large. Uh, and at the same time, I don't know even know if that was her primary driver as much as the fact that she realized that she needs to take care of herself. Uh, and that's really, really important. It's wisdom at a young age. And I think for some people, that's kind of a hard thing to get to. So let me ask you, how, how can a person tell if they're burning out? Are there signs or symptoms to watch out for? There's actually a definition for burnout, which says that burnout is a syndrome resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed and is characterized by three things or three dimensions. One is feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. The other is increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job. And then the third is reduced professional efficacy. So burnout really refers to the phenomena in a work or occupational context shouldn't really be applied to describing experience in other areas of life, officially, that is. I was going to ask you about the difference between um, people in high-stress jobs necessarily versus low-stress jobs, but it also makes me wonder, I mean, people that don't have traditional paid work could also face burnout, I imagine. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, thing that you asked because high stress and low stress are obviously relative, right? To the person, to the context of their environment. In fact, when we think about features uh, of jobs or, or work related situations, occupational situations that uh, can actually result in burnout, uh, there are several things that we think about. So one, uh, if you wanna start from the proverbial top, uh, it has to do with leadership, right? It has to do with expectations 
that are known, said, understood, clarified. Uh, it has to do with things like, you know, requirements. And then if there's clarity on what you're expected or what to do or what's expected from you. And then also the impossible requirements are oftentimes people are given a responsibility, but not the adequate time or resource. And then they have to kind of figure it out, right? So in the startup world, oftentimes there's lack of resource, but, you know, a plethora of ideas. And then, you know, you're told just go with it. Uh, but now people are working 18, 20 hours a day to make it happen. And so this idea of life balance, their perceived life balance is something that can get affected. So initially you're excited, right? Because you got this opportunity. And then soon you realize that, yeah, but this is like a, almost like an endless or bottomless pit because you can keep going down that path uh, and your physical resource, your emotional resource, your mental resource, your other commitments, especially possibly on the personal side, those now are getting taken from, right? So, you know, my wife, I give her a lot of credit for some of the insights that I've gleaned over time, but oftentimes, you know, she's reminded me that it's wonderful when you say yes to others, but what that does is also takes away from the time here. And so you want to make sure that we're feeling balanced in the process. And it's really great insight for uh, someone to kind of keep, which is who have you committed to uh, in your personal life? When you take on new commitments, uh, how are you balancing both sides of the equation? You know, And it seems like if you don't balance those, you could end up in a situation where you feel more stress in your, you know, your home life, so to speak, than you do at work, right? If you've taken on too much. And I agree. And I think, you know, again, it's it's relative to the person. So I'm not here to say that there's one way and you have to, you know, do it one way or my way, because even for me at different stages in my life, that word balance has meant different things depending on the commitments, stages of our own lives, even at work. And we talk about burnout being a work oriented thing. Even at work, it's a matter of what we're doing, who we're with, what roles and responsibilities we have, uh, what position we're in, and all of that makes a difference. Now, I know it's typecasting to say, you know, a high stress job might be, uh, you know, on Wall Street versus um, a low stress job being maybe a an accountant or something, not during tax time, but during other times of the year. I was going to say, that's an example. <laughs> Don't tell Season, my accountant Seasonality, that. right. But I, I just wonder if you see people burning out more in the higher stress or more demanding jobs. I think, I think what's interesting is one of the uh, thoughts about it is, you know, uh, consequence, right, for failure is one of those things that we don't talk about enough. But, you know, there's a lot of in the, the world of wellness and well-being and in terms of people who are the thought leaders, you know, they talk about how, you know, fail failure is necessary to uh, understand limits, boundaries, and expand your boundaries. And we should be able to, you know, allow people to fail so that they can actually learn new skills. But at the same time, you know, jobs that have high consequence, you think about lawyers, you think about, you know, even in healthcare uh, and potentially even accountants, right? At the end of the day, if there is a high consequence, even with one failure, now suddenly it's going to be a very high stress uh, job. And for that environment, you know, your margin of error becomes so slim, uh, especially when lives are at stake, that for those people, the potential to burn out, especially if they're feeling a lack of uh, personal control over their environment. So, you know, providers that uh, have schedules that are untenable, uh, or especially when people have to complete work after hours, um, or, you know, additional time is required at home. Uh, you know, teachers actually are one of the groups that has one of the highest degrees of burnout. And for them, a lot of it has to do with lack of autonomy uh, and oftentimes lack of resource. When you think about with COVID, uh, you know, one of the bigger issues has been in terms of how they get to instruct and the fact that they don't necessarily have full control with hybrid models, et cetera. Uh, and yet the expectation from the system are that they'll still achieve a certain level uh, in terms of their pupils and how they perform on standardized tests at a time when, you know, standardized measures are not in place for what we've known in the past. 
You're listening to a discussion about the importance of mental health on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm speaking with the Assistant Dean of Wellness and the Director of Integrative Therapy, Dr. Koshal Nanavati. How do you differentiate between good stress and bad stress? And I wonder if too much good stress can be dangerous. So good stress actually has a name. It's called eustress, E-U stress. And then there's distress, right? Uh, and we want to de-stress, really. And that is actually the balancer between the two. So, you know, good stress is something that excites you, uh, that gets your adrenaline pumping, your blood flowing. When you stay at that level, there's still a component in the body in which the stress hormones are still elevated. You know, and while you're enjoying it at the moment, when it gets sustained for too long a time frame, that can lead to biophysical changes as well as an overwhelmed feeling for some people at times. Plus, that initial high tends to fade over time, especially if there's not some kind of new stimulation for people, right? Distress or bad stress, again, that leads to a mood effect right away, emotional effect right away. Uh, and now motivation really gets, you know, kind of drained very quickly. So, you know, rather than distress, you change one vowel and you get de-stress. And oftentimes the issue is even in high stress situations, when people don't have downtime, right? Or recovery time, right? So if you're constantly draining the tank and not filling it back up, at some point you're gonna be empty, right? Whether it's you stress or distress, you're emptying the tank. And so you got to take the time to replenish uh, and in the moment, it can be things like taking a deep breath or being mindful or meditation. But in the long term, to sustain it, it comes back to the things that you and I have you know, spoken about several times, optimizing the nutrition and the physical activity. And exercise is a great way to de-stress, right? To focus on the things that you can do something about and to let go of the things you can't control because that's oftentimes where people get stuck, right? Uh, to not be stuck in the past oftentimes emotionally or mentally because that is depressing especially when you can't go back and change that or people who get anxious about you know what if and the problem is the what if is an infinite potential and so now we're stuck there versus recognizing i've got this moment and in this moment can i find some degree of peace or contentment the goal is happiness and happiness is a uh, something that there's actually studies that show that people who hinge their happiness on achieving a goal, they kind of yo-yo through happiness in their life because if they get the goal, they're happy. If they don't get the goal, they're not. But people who have a sense of what they call durable plentitude, which is, I am enough, right? And now, whatever circumstance I'm in, I know that I've got the result within me to be able to manage and to rebalance based on what my needs are, so that I can feel a sense of happiness or joy or contentment or peace, whichever of those that I value most. If a person takes off work for a mental health day, what's the best way to spend that day? So again, uh, you know, the best answer in medicine is it depends. So it depends, Amber. Uh, and the <laughs> reason I give that answer is because for some people, it might be getting to the bank, right? Uh, and getting their finances done. Others might need to go grocery shopping or, uh, you know, do the lawn. Some people might need to just take a nap, right? Sleep. Uh, others may feel like, you know what? I would like to get out into nature and go on a hike. Now, sometimes people do physically challenging things during down times and it's rejuvenating in the moment, but the body does require recovery, right? So like the weekend warrior phenomena that can actually potentially even lead to injury and so the key is consistency and it's trying to pace ourselves. One study was interesting that showed that people that did 10 minutes of exercise a day versus people that did 30 minutes three times a week, the people that did 10 minutes a day were more likely to make it a habit, right? And so again, this idea of recovery and then you know going, 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 going until you hit the wall and then taking a break versus incorporating into a regular routine, which you can sustain over time leads to improved sustainable outcomes so that in all spokes, you're able to perform at a better, more consistent level as well. 
So that would be one way to sort of build up some resiliency against burnout. I agree. And I think, you know, the, the, again, the word resiliency is one that has dual meaning. So it's used oftentimes by leadership as you know, what our, our teams showed a lot of resiliency through this pandemic and through, you know, hard times. And oftentimes it's perceived from the other side as basically what you're saying is we work like, you know, our butts off, uh, without any breaks and kind of, you know, worked ourselves to the bone. Uh, and while leadership is trying to acknowledge it by saying resiliency, sometimes this idea of resiliency has actually a negative uh, perception because it usually is a result of people overcommitting, overdoing, going beyond. Uh, and we know that there's not really anything over 100%. So when people give 110%, that extra percent is coming from their other commitments, which could be family, children, spouses, you know, other social engagements. And so we always have to think about that. Uh, and I think it's about finding that sense of balance uh, and figuring out what contentment means at different phases and stages in our lives. Well, you've given us lots to think about. Thank you again to Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Blood transfusions can save lives before a patient gets to the hospital. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Trauma is a leading cause of death for Americans, and many of those who suffer a traumatic injury may die because they bleed to death before medical help arrives. Today, I'm talking about pre-hospital blood transfusions with Dr. Jordan Holliday. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate University Hospital, which is Central New York's only level one trauma center. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Holliday. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Now, there was a case reported widely in the news in central New York of a man who lost both of his legs in a corn picking machine in the town of Green uh, back in March 2021. A New York-based medical helicopter wasn't available, so Guthrie Air came from Sayre, Pennsylvania to help. Tell us what difference that made. So from being outside of New York, uh, Guthrie Air wasn't required to follow the same rules and regulations that a New York-based EMS agency would be able to follow. And in this case, one of the important aspects of the difference in care that they were able to provide is that in Pennsylvania, air EMS agencies are able to store and then initiate blood transfusions during the transport of critically ill and injured patients. So we're talking about whole blood like you would get in a hospital. Yes, it does vary from state to state whether the transfusion is whole blood or packed red blood cells, um, but certainly just having the availability of blood products to transfuse en route can make the, a major difference, in, uh, especially in trauma patients. So what do you think might have happened to this trauma patient if he didn't receive whole blood in the field? It's difficult to extrapolate in this particular case as I wasn't directly involved, but certainly patients who have life-threatening hemorrhage from very severe injuries can only compensate for so long before they reach a state called irreversible shock. And in addition to the severity of his extremity injuries, uh, organ dysfunction and failure, and ultimately cardiovascular collapse can occur if a significant amount of blood is lost at the scene and is not able to be replaced. Well, in a situation where the patient has to be extricated from farm equipment or from a car or something, uh, how do you stop the blood loss, but at the same time, try to replace the blood that they have lost. This can definitely be a pretty challenging scenario. Uh, so when patients are entrapped and require extrication, either from motor vehicle collisions or other um, industrial machinery, it can be difficult to assess where the source of the bleeding is coming from, as well as accessing the site to control the bleeding. We usually recommend uh, Simple measures at first, including direct pressure if you're able to identify the source of the bleeding and apply direct pressure to the wound. EMS also has the availability of different hemostatic agents, which in combination with direct pressure 
can facilitate clotting of life-threatening bleeding. Another thing that is uh, commonly available is tourniquets, which if it's an extremity wound, such as in this case, it could potentially be applied if there's room between the injury and the patient's core to actually apply a tourniquet. Can you go over what the current rules are about medical helicopters carrying blood in New York State? So sure. Uh, currently, the New York State Department of Health has a division that oversees transfusion medicine, which includes in the pre-hospital setting. Due to the current uh, legislation, EMS agencies uh, have very difficult hurdles to overcome to be able to store and or administer blood products. Something that many people may be aware of now is recently in the news, the legislator has passed a new bill that's being uh, sent over to the governor for his review and hopefully signature that would enable air EMS agencies to transfuse blood in the pre-hospital setting. So would the air ambulances carry just the O negative, the universal donor, or because, or would they carry a variety of blood types? How, how would that work? I'm not sure on all of the details yet, and I'm not sure if all the logistics have been worked out, um, but certainly, as you mentioned, O negative being the universal donor would be the most logical if they are going to carry any blood product. And then certainly there are concerns, logistics, and other operationally to have different blood products, not only in storing them, but ensuring that the transfusion is administered uh, to the correct patients and in a safe manner with appropriate oversight. Now, when you say to the correct patients, would anyone with uncontrolled bleeding get whole blood automatically, or are there other factors to consider? There are always factors to consider, and as is the case in most things in medicine, there's definitely a risk versus benefit and even things that have the potential for life-saving uh, measures can have kind of unforeseen or unsought adverse events. So I would say that the severity of the patient's injury, their clinical condition, and anticipated transport time are definitely factors that would play into the decision whether or not to initiate a transfusion of blood product in the pre-hospital setting, if available. Now, if these changes take place in New York State, would they apply only to medical helicopters or would they apply to ambulances on the ground? To my knowledge, this bill is only for air transport ambulance service providers, uh, which are regarded as providing the highest level of pre-hospital care available to critically ill and injured patients, especially in the state of New York. I think that enabling transfusion for air medical providers would likely allow for development of policies, procedures, and oversight for pre-hospital transfusion that then may be able to be extrapolated to ground ambulances in the future. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and my guest is Dr. Jordan Holliday, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate University Hospital. And we're talking about how pre-hospital blood transfusions may be life-saving in certain situations. So people who have taken a first aid class may remember to use direct pressure to control bleeding, but in situations where that's not enough, can you talk about the tools paramedics have to treat someone who's losing a lot of blood? So in addition to direct pressure, there are hemostatic agents, the most common we uh, acknowledged or known as probably combat gauze which contains agents that help to facilitate clotting of blood when applied with direct pressure. Uh, for extremity wounds or wounds that are amenable to tourniquet application, that's also another more invasive uh, form of addressing life-threatening hemorrhage. Particularly tourniquets are limited though to extremities. And as we mentioned earlier, if patients are entrapped or entangled in equipment or motor vehicle um, collision, this can be difficult to actually apply a tourniquet proximal to the wound. So when you mention, let me back up a little bit on the hemostatic agents, the, the gauze, is this a gauze that is treated with something that helps the blood clot? Yes, so there are a variety of products, each of which kind of contains a unique or different uh, compound that facilitates uh, blood clot formation. 
And then it's also important to recognize and appreciate that application of the hemostatic agent itself uh, won't necessarily stop the bleeding, but that it should be used in conjunction with application of direct pressure. And so is direct pressure usually, I mean, is, is that very effective for a lot of wounds? It usually is if you are able to identify where the source of the bleeding is coming from and then actually apply kind of targeted direct pressure. Oftentimes we'll see people apply numerous gauze pads and things like that, which then actually kind of distribute the force away from the source of the bleeding. So if you're able to identify one particular area that's a major source of the bleeding, that's ideal. It is important to acknowledge also that this will be very uncomfortable for the patient, particularly since they already are likely in significant pain from their injury. Um, can you talk a little bit about normal saline? What is that used for? Sure. Uh, so it has very limited, if any, use in the setting of trauma patients. Uh, certainly, hopefully it will soon be replaced by the availability of blood products. Um, normal saline is an intravenous fluid that can be useful for volume replacement mostly in the setting of dehydration and in some electrolyte disturbances. In the setting of trauma, however, when patients are losing blood, uh, administration of normal saline can improve the patient's vital signs temporarily, but may dilute their remaining clotting factors, as well as normal saline is often colder than the patient's body temperature, so it can contrib contribute to hypothermia and worsen the patient's acidosis, which then further uh, complicates their coagulopathy or ability to clot in the setting of trauma. So it's not really um, it's not really a good blood substitute. Are are there any good quality blood substitutes on the market? There are some substitutes that are aimed at oxygen carrying capacity, which normal saline does not have, but blood products, um, particularly red blood cells, do. Um, however, to my knowledge, there's been no real research into or discussion of these substitutes um, with pertaining to application in the pre-hospital setting, especially within New York State. I see. Well, your colleagues from the trauma team support an educational program called Stop the Bleed that trains regular people how to stop bleeding in emergencies. What's most important for people to know about how to control a severe injury with bleeding? I think that education empowers bystanders to uh, participate in controlling life-threatening hemorrhage if they come across it either in themselves or um, someone else. I think that emphasizing simple measures also empowers individuals to get involved rather than remaining as a bystander. And then time can obviously be a major role in limiting or preventing further blood loss, especially if blood products aren't available to replace what the patient has lost. The Stop the Bleed course um, through the American College of Surgeons is aimed at simple measures to control life-threatening hemorrhage, starting with things such as direct pressure or compression dressings, as well as review of some of the hemostatic agents and wound packing if a wound is amenable to packing, mostly on an extremity. And then if hemorrhage continues despite those interventions, then a tourniquet can be applied. And I know during the pandemic, these um, classes really haven't been held in person because of the pandemic, but people could find them through the American College of Surgeons or through the Upstate Medical University trauma team has information available as well, right? Correct. I believe that the national organization is stopthebleed.org. And then there is a dedicated page through Upstate's uh, trauma surgery program that in the future, individuals will be able to find available courses to sign up for. Well, let me ask you, um, as we wrap up, one sort of practical question. If someone were to cut their finger, how would you advise them to control the bleeding, and how would they know if they need medical attention? I would say that starting simply, if you keep the injury above the level of the heart, if possible, and then apply direct pressure, to the source of the bleeding as targeted as, as you can. So minimizing the amount of gauze used, obviously if it's yourself versus someone else, um, minimizing your exposure to bloodborne pathogens is also a point that should be emphasized and to keep yourself safe before intervening on other people. And then if you're able to control a wound with direct pressure, you should be able to assess whether 
it may um, still gape apart, which could be an indication that it needs some uh, tissue adhesive or skin glue or possibly stitches or sutures. All right. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Jordan Holliday. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, does your pharmacy offer compounded medications? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate University Hospital has a retail pharmacy in the hospital lobby in downtown Syracuse, and now it's opening a second location. Here with me to talk about the Upstate Outpatient Pharmacy are Eric Ballatin and Emily Adamy. Eric is a pharmacist and director of Upstate's Retail Specialty Pharmacy, and Emily is the pharmacy manager of the new pharmacy location. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Eric, and nice to meet you, Emily. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sure listeners know that hospitals have pharmacy departments, but a little more than three years ago in 2018, Upstate opened an outpatient pharmacy. How does this differ from a traditional pharmacy department? So I need to kind of back up back to 2018. So when Upstate decided that they wanted to build a pharmacy, uh, both Emily and I are pharmacists and the other pharmacists we brought on, Dave Geloso, we decided to look at all the problems that patients were having with pharmacy and build our pharmacy around those problems. So traditionally, a pharmacy, basically patients walk into a main door of a pharmacy, go to the pharmacy desk and get their prescriptions and go home. What we really tried to do is how can we be different than that? What can, how can we solve some problems that patients are experiencing when they go to a pharmacy? When a patient walks into a pharmacy, uh, there's a chance that a prescription requires an authorization from an insurance company, which could delay somebody having getting their medication. They could walk into a pharmacy and a pharmacy may not have that med at, at that time, and that delays a patient from getting their medication. They may walk in again and find out that the copay of that medication is extremely expensive, and then they can't afford that medication. So all those kind of problems we tried to solve with our pharmacy, we built a very strong meds to beds program. And what a meds to beds program is, is a, where we, when a patient's in a hospital and being discharged, we want to deliver those medications to the bed, bedside of that patient at the time of discharge. So when they leave the hospital, they can go right home, they can take care of themselves, they don't have to make any additional stops, and they go home with everything that they need. Uh, we, we make sure that when a patient leaves the, the hospital with the meds to beds program, their authorizations are in place so they get their medications. We make sure that we have a large formulary of medications that the doctors are writing for, so they go home with those medications. And then we have a very strong uh, medication assistance program that identifies patients that have a higher copay, and we use $25 as our threshold. And we immediately start working on looking for some type of assistance for those patients. And it could be just a generic manufacturer discount card. It could be an upstate foundation, which we use quite a bit for support to our patients, um, or we use an upstate financial discount related upon their potential um, need. So if they have a financial need for a prescription or for uh, a discount, we can apply it just based upon their income and, uh, and household expenses. So we really try to make it affordable, we try to make it accessible, and we try to make it comfortable for a patient that they can have everything when they go home. So you're navigating sort of all of those um, behind the scenes kind of headaches and hassles, um, you're trying to sort of streamline that for patients, it sounds like. Exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to do and trying to make it convenient, right? I mean, if a patient's leaving a hospital and they have to stop at their home pharmacy on their way home, it could be out of the way. This allows them to leave the hospital, go home and get their medication. Uh, so it makes it a little, little bit better than a traditional pharmacy at the point of discharge. Now, the outpatient pharmacy in the hospital lobby downtown is going to remain open, but please explain why, are you, why you're adding a second location. Where is that going to be? The second location is actually going to be up across the street from our community hospital right now. 
Um, it's in a separate building, but it's very close by. So it's convenient for anyone who is leaving the hospital or who is just um, driving by itself. Um, the hours are going to remain the same. So downtown currently we're open Monday through Friday, 8 to 6 p.m. Downtown is open on the weekends from 9 to 2 p.m. The only difference currently as we open this new location is going to be that the weekends will not be available at our community location. However, all of our services will still be able to be uh, completed by using our downtown location currently. Now, I imagine that many of your patients um, that come to the pharmacy have doctors at Upstate, but do you have customers or do you allow customers whose doctors are not Upstate doctors? Yeah, we, we absolutely do. So we are licensed in the state of New York as a re retail pharmacy. So we and a patient, any patient can use us, whether you're using us from an upstate provider or not. And that's really the convenience of the second location. It's it's outside the hospital main campus. Uh, parking is significantly better than the downtown uh, locations. And the goal for us with the pharmacy development is really to have that pharmacy at the hospital downtown to manage patients for discharge. This new pharmacy will manage all the uh, so-called special services. And what I mean about that is we're gonna, going to do um, significantly more compounding, compounding prescriptions. So compounding prescriptions are typically geared towards pediatric patients or patients that go to a dermatologist. They need some kind of special formulation or a reduced dose that's not commercially available. So the new facility has a large compounding rooms to make non-sterile compounds. And we found that there was a big void in the community. So about two years ago, there was a pharmacy not far from Syracuse that uh, did all these kind of services that went no longer is in existence. So we're trying to fill that gap because we know that there's a significant need in the community to fill it. And that's kind of what we're all about is trying to fill that community need. So we're having a compounding pharmacy at this location. The, the pharmacy also is a specialty pharmacy and what that means is that we are accredited by two different accreditation bodies uh urac is one of them and achc is the second those are national accreditations for specialty pharmacy a specialty pharmacy medication is typically a very high cost medication that requires constant supervision in order to deliver the appropriate outcome to the patient so, and it's very expensive for insurance companies. And, and typically what happens is when a patient needs those kind of therapies, they're coming from some sort of mail order pharmacy from outside the state of New York. They're coming from some national company. Uh, so we feel that having the high touch uh, to our patients with our hospital system, having our high touch with our pharmacy connectivity to the patient, being a local uh, pharmacy that can deliver at, at need to our patients when requested, uh, we also, you know, that specialty division does really, really well um, in the sense of living that kind of care to the patient. We also have a, at the new location, have a specialized uh, robotic system. I'll let Emily kind of talk about what that's going to do and how that's kind of uh, going to help our patients out as well. I definitely want to hear more about the robotic, but getting back to the compounding, is is that a mixture? Are you taking different um, medications and mixing them? Or what? what is, can you kind of be more descriptive about what that's for? So at our particular level of pharmacy right now as a retail pharmacy, we don't do a lot of um, compounds like the inpatient does. The training is a little bit different, but we have set up this pharmacy at this location to have sterile fields for us to do these compounds so that the safety for the medication that's being dispensed and also for us pharmacists who are doing it is really at the top of, of the game. So we are going to be able to do a lot more um, oral suspensions that we do for some of our pediatrics. So we are creating a liquid version of a medication that's not available in a liquid form currently being manufactured by a drug company. Um, one of the examples could be a medication for our neurology patients. Um, some of them can be considered hazardous if they are created into a liquid form. So having our compounding sterile hoods and everything will allow us to do that and to service more of the pediatric patients. You can't go to a regular retail pharmacy and ask them to create these suspensions with what's provided on their shelves currently. I see. 
This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with pharmacists Eric Ballatin and Emily Adamy about the expansion of the Upstate Outpatient Pharmacy. Now, Emily, I understand the pharmacy has robotic packaging. Can you describe what that is and why it's important? Absolutely. So the first part of this program was really a manual compliance program that I started. We saw a huge need, especially with our refugee population, where you're not able to understand the language that is currently being spoken wherever your neighborhood is, or just the sometimes the complications of what a medication is in those directions. We needed a way to keep our patients taking medications on a daily basis so that they're compliant. So currently I'm using a kind of like a plastic uh, med tray that you would get at any pharmacy. It's typically a one week tray. What I'm doing is a 28 day tray for these patients. All their medications are being commingled into one individual slot. So I have morning, we have an afternoon, we have an evening and a bedtime. Everything that needs to be taken at that specific time of day is pre-packed for them. The guesswork is gone. Um, the medications are listed on each individual blister, so it's very helpful when a patient goes back to their doctors for their um, regular checkups. They can bring that, and they know exactly what the, the patient is taking, and the family members also can be able to understand what that other family member is taking. So I do that all on my own. Um, I have close to 50 patients right now that I'm doing per month. And we just found a huge need for this. So with our new location, we were able to purchase a robotic machine that will make this a little bit more simpler in regards to packing it and getting out on time. So we're hopeful that we can expand this program to allow more patients to be in on this compliance program um, and get the benefits of what we have to offer. That sounds amazing for for people that have to take a lot of medications. Um, it sounds like it would be a lot safer because it's easy to have a mix up at home if you've got, you know, six pill bottles and you're trying to remember which one to take in the morning and which at night. Um, it sounds like you guys take the guesswork out of that. And we do. And I, and I want Emily to speak. Of, so we looked at those 44 patients and we did some analysis on admission rates before you're on the program and after you're on the program. And we have pretty amazing results for those patients that are using us. So we did a little study. Originally I had 44 patients. It's grown slightly since then, but we looked at those 44 patients and prior to them using what is called our DISPIL um, packaging compliance program, there were about 21 hospitalizations. When we then looked at those same set of patients, those 44 patients, one year after they started our compliance program, we had seven hospitalizations. And then to wow. go even further, when it was greater than that one year mark, we only had two. So it's clearly showing success in keeping these patients on their medication regimens and out of the hospital for unnecessary things that they need to go to. Wow. Do you offer home delivery? We absolutely do. So, especially with my um, compliance packaging, um, we courier to their house. Um, we also uh, uh, provide free shipping and we utilize our UPS as our services for that. Now, that's what I wondered about because I know upstate serves such a large region from the Canadian border to the Pennsylvania border. So, for people who live, you know, hours away, you're able to ship directly to their home? Yeah, so we ship using UPS and we always ship next day ground. So if a patient needs it and calls us today for a refill, they will have it the next day by seven o'clock. And then if we have anybody within about 30 miles of our hospital locations uh, and they have some sort of more urgent need, we have used the upstate courier system to deliver as well as an outside courier system to deliver. And we have three scheduled pickup times from our pharmacy to get out to the patient. So. We really try to be available when, when, when we can to our patients using any kind of resource we can, uh, because we know medication management is a huge readmission problem and we want to make sure that they take their medications and stay compliant with what they're doing. Now, are you able to uh, include non-prescription medications or things such as syringes or gauze that aren't prescriptions? So, yes, yeah, so, so we do include whatever the patient requests as long as they have a prescription with it. We're, we're not the type of courier service or pharmacy that can just deliver an over-the-counter item. 
we did that during COVID to try to manage those COVID patients with some different supplies uh, to keep them from having to go out and, and transmit a potential um, increased transmission of the COVID problem. Um, but normally, we, we if anybody asks anything, we will deliver it with their prescription items. I'm glad to know about the expansion of the outpatient pharmacy. Thank you to pharmacist Eric Ballatin, the Associate Director of Upstate's Pharmacy Enterprise, and Emily Adamy. She's the pharmacy manager of the new pharmacy location across from Upstate Community Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Jason Wallen is Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate University Hospital and Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program at the Upstate Cancer Center. Who is recommended to undergo lung cancer screening? One of the important risk factors for lung cancer is how much somebody smoked. And so we have to have a way to measure that. And uh, the way we measure that is we, we, look, we ask a patient how many packs of cigarettes they typically smoked a day over their lifetime. Uh, the most common number in my experience is one pack of cigarettes per day. So we we'll use that for an example. And then we ask them for how many years did they smoke? And obviously, how many years they smoked uh, can vary. Some patients didn't smoke contiguously over their entire life. Some people, you know, started and stopped uh, at various points in their life. But we try to come up with a number for how many years they actually smoked. And we multiply the two. So if somebody smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years, that's a 30-pack year history of smoking. And that was the, the floor for lung cancer screening before. So if somebody had a 25-pack year history of smoking, they didn't qualify for lung cancer screening. That has changed. Now uh, it is tw down to 20-pack years. So if somebody smoked a pack a day for 20 years or two packs a day for 10 years, that both, both those would get you to 20-pack years. And, and based on that, the patient would qualify for lung cancer screening. Uh, the other uh, thing that has changed in the recommendations is the age range. So we used to say that patients uh, between the ages of 55 and 80 qualified for lung cancer screening. That has now come down to age 50. So ages 50 to 80 qualified for lung cancer screening. And then the final uh, criteria is if the patient has quit smoking, uh, how long ago did they quit? And that has not changed. So uh, anybody who has a significant smoking history, as we just talked about, who has quit less than 15 years ago, qualifies for lung cancer screening. Patients who do get lung cancer screening on a regular basis or who follow the guidelines do uh, find that we, get, we detect their lung cancers earlier at much more treatable stages, and there are dramatic improvements in survival related to that. Thank you, Dr. Jason Wallen from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Winston Oliver, a second-year med student at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse, began writing when he worked nights as a psychiatric technician in Rochester. He was a winner in our Deering writing competition with this beautiful love poem, a perfect meditation about space and time. Here is Three Feet. I couldn't sleep last night in your absence, so I got up, put on the kettle, and took some of your favorite tea from the cupboard. I waited in silence, leaned against the counter, and looked out at the church next door through groggy midnight veil. I thought of your penchant for air, having fans cranked to their highest setting, almost always followed by my complaints. But last night, I forced open the window, which was stuck to its frame and welcomed a cool October breeze. I closed my eyes and breathed deeply, the same air from years ago, on my way to fetch a pogo stick from the barn and jump a thousand times. But this time I wasn't jumping. I didn't need to. I was absorbed into the night from the inside out, as you into me and I you, when you come to greet me after work, or when we close the door behind our last dinner guest in love. The kettle squealed. I turned and moved it from the burner, twisted the cooktop dial one notch to the right, and filled one of your little white mugs. I sat at the kitchen table for a while, facing the far wall. When we first moved in, I had put the table between two windows, 
where it was centered and close to the pendant light. But you moved it. For some reason I fail to remember, you moved it three feet off center, three feet closer to the far wall, three feet south, southwest. Only then I understood on my third sip of tea, as a sweet peppermint aroma rose to greet me, that I was three feet closer to you. But it makes no difference, three from 10,000 or 10,003, or really any distance, because I can always sit facing you in love. My eyes started to feel heavy, so I laid down in bed on my side with the covers up high, where just a week before I could see you and count your breaths before falling asleep, my nightly ritual. Things weren't so different though in your absence because I saw you when I closed my eyes. You wore a bright yellow dress, sat in an open field, and had your hair done as if you were about to perform, but your smile told me otherwise. I miss that smile when we go out to eat or have drinks with friends, when we try our best to act civilized as though we are not thoroughly, desperately, and endlessly in love. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an overview of osteoporosis treatments. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.